Salam guys, I'm Mohsin. Welcome to this episode of Millionaire Muslim. Before we get into this episode, we just wanted to spend a few seconds telling you about Islamic Finance Guru or IFG for short. Mohsin and I co-founded IFG in 2015 because we couldn't find content about personal finance and Islamic finance for Muslims like you and I. Nowadays, alhamdulillah, we reach an audience of hundreds of thousands and our goal is to keep providing great content to help you guys. So if you're looking for halal investments and Islamic mortgages or startup funding, check us out at islamicfinanceguru.com. And if you want to get in touch with us directly, you can get me on mohsin at islamicfinanceguru.com and you can get Ibrahim on ibrahim at islamicfinanceguru.com. Enjoy the episode. Looking for a different approach to money? Meet Gatehouse Bank a Sharia-compliant UK bank built for the modern world. We help home buyers to purchase or refinance their home, provide buy-to-let funding for landlords, and offer award-winning savings accounts. Wherever you're going, get there a different way. Get there with Gatehouse. To find out more, visit gatehousebank.com. Before we dive in, I'd just like to say a quick thank you to our sponsor, PensionBee. They have helped over 70,000 customers be pension confident by helping them transfer their old pensions together into one simple online plan. They also have a great Sharia-compliant pension option as well, which is why we personally really like them. And you can check out a review of their offering on the Sharia side on our website. Assalamu alaikum everyone and welcome to the latest episode of IFG's podcast Millionaire Muslim. With me I have a really interesting guest, someone that I've knew for a long period of time that I forgot I knew and then reacquainted with him uh, recently. He goes by the name of Gashif Shabir. Uh, I'm not sure why I introduced you that way. It's just your name, isn't it? <laughs> and uh, make me sound like I'm sort of undercover agent. <laughs> Go by the name of actually. That is his name. He's like you know, that's also what he you know he's been called by his parents. And Garshif, you know, the reason why I thought it'd be great to have you on is because you're one of the I think few individuals that I know where you have bridged the gap between you know growing up in. London, uh, Muslim areas, being very involved in the da'wah scene, to then working in the corporate world, you know, going to America, Silicon Valley and what have you, and working at some really large companies, but then also coming back and now working in the charity sector to this point where you're now the CEO um, of Muslim Aid, right? And just the whole journey, I think, is one that we can learn from. And also, I think the cross-pollination between you going, because there's certain people who will live, who will be born in East London, and they will live in East London, and they will die in East London. And that's it. And there'll be certain people who will live in, work in the charity sector, and that's all they know. But this cross-pollination that you've had going on, I think will be really fascinating to um, learn from for everyone for their life, but also, I guess, when it comes to giving charity and thinking about our finances. So I guess the, the first question really, Gashib, that I'd like to kick off with is, in your own words, what, like, what was your story? How did you get into the corporate world? How did you move from that into the Islamic charity space? How did it all happen? 
Thanks for the invitation and the opportunity as well, Ibrahim. And, and yeah, just to reiterate, Gosh, you should be, is the only name I have. It's not just the name I go by. <laughs> it is the only name I've had since birth uh, and the only name I use, uh, just in case there was uh, other regulatory uh, bodies listening to the podcast <laughs> and they're wondering what other names he uses. Now, thank you, Ibrahim. Uh, great to have a chat. Yeah, as you mentioned, look, uh, I think... My background isn't too interesting. Um, like you said, maybe what's more interesting are some of those transition points that you that you mentioned. And yes, I was born and raised in East London, son of second generation uh, Pakistani immigrants. Funny enough, our first house that we owned, or my parents owned, is, is actually opposite to Muslim Aid's current office, so just off of uh, Whitechapel Road. So I'm very familiar with the area even before Muslim Aid officers were there or, or the East London Masjid was there, which is where next door to where we're based. And um, yeah, went to a local junior school there, moved out of East, you know, moved into around further east as I got older. And um, yeah, like you mentioned, spent a significant time in, in the States. Uh, my first degree was in computer science from uh, King's College in London. And, and yeah, I started... started uh, gosh, was it a popular degree at the time that you did it? Because obviously now <laughs> everyone's raving about it. Yeah. It was a good question. Yeah, it was. I specifically remember. I've always been interested in technology. I, I guess I'd argue I still am a geek. In, I don't know even if they still use that word geek, but I'm still interested in technology, still read about it. But I was interested in technology, I must admit. But no, there's no doubt in my mind that at one point I sat down and I was deciding whether I should do medicine, which is another area I was quite interested in and computer science and I said you know how long does it take me to earn such and such money if I do medicine and someone said like maybe seven or ten years and computer science and computing at the time if you remember it was all about networking and the MSCA MCSEs I think it was Microsoft and you know people were just making a lot of money even without degrees and uh, yeah I guess I followed that trend and I done computer science which was still a hard degree for sure but I'd done as little programming as I possibly could to get through the degree <laughs> and yeah and kind of fell into that field but realized quite quickly my first job and my only commercial job was with Nokia the phone company and uh, Nokia were quite huge at the time but realized quite quickly that programming wasn't where I wanted to stay and uh, I found through the internal job sites that we had at Nokia I found this opportunity in, in Silicon Valley in, in the States as you mentioned and uh, I had some very good supportive managers at the time, and they put me on a leadership program. And that was it, really. I, uh, you know, got shipped off to the valley, learned a lot, traveled the world. You know, a lot of people talk about the culture in Silicon Valley. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never been there. You know, what are the lessons that you learned from the culture, good or bad, that either stuck with you or, you know, that you've taken inspiration from in other institutions, organizations you've you know, mm. subsequently worked in or established. Yeah. Your listeners might be worried that the head of IFG has never been to the Valley, but <laughs> that's another podcast. I guess you're going to have to address that. But no, um, on a serious note, no, it wasn't just the Valley. It was the first time I'd travelled to live somewhere. So my education, my background, all of it had been in East London. You know, my King's College was only half an hour train ride from East London into the Strand. It was a big opportunity for m- myself but also a quite a wide awakening of, of cultures coming together, especially in California. Uh, those that haven't been, I mean, California, are very unlike most of the other states, you know, it's always been a melting pot of cultures. And outside of the investment 
seen companies like, you know, obviously Google, Yahoo, all of these guys, HP that have started up the Apple, that were all the stones throw away. It's just a great place to learn from different cultures. And I learned a lot about running businesses, but also just a lot about different people. And I think that put me in good seed. And when I add that to traveling, I mean, pretty much traveled every continent while I was there because, like I said, I was on this leadership program. And um, they sent me, you know, everywhere from Australia to the Middle East, to Canada, everywhere around the US. And that just gave me a great appreciation of what it takes to work in a global organization. And obviously, Allah SWT had his own plans. And, and obviously, when I came to lead global organizations or international organizations after that, it put me in good stead. You know, I'd been to a lot of those countries. I understood a lot of their cultures. Um, what it takes to work in certain countries and the nuances and the diversity that you have to take into account. At quite a young age, you know, I was exposed to a lot of that and, and I think it put me in good good seat. And, and like I said, I mean, you know, born and raised in East London, and you're right, I mean, the gravity of that doesn't escape me. I mean, very few of us did manage to get good jobs, very few of us did manage to even finish university and and I'm grateful of that opportunity and and that's what really led on to like the charity area. Like, you know, the idea has always been to find a way to give back. You know, Allah SWT gave me the opportunity to learn these skills in, in a large organization, travel the world. And you just get to a point where you're like, okay, how much and how can I find a way to give back? And, yeah. and that's what I started doing, just sharing my experiences, working in yeah. a multinational. I definitely want to get into that whole side of things, the giving back aspect, because you had a really interesting stint, which I think, again, is relatively rare, at some really large mainstream charities as well. Mm. Um, you know, I'd love to hear about that. But before we move on from your previous, I guess, life or previous career, what was it, do you think, that in retrospect meant that you and a few others born and bred in, you know, East London, I don't know, from like, you know, first generation immigrant families and, and that sort of thing. What was it about you and the people that, I guess, for the sake of a better phrase, you know, came good or did well or got out versus the people who didn't? It, was it your parents' upbringing? Was it like circumstance? Was it luck, hard work? What, what, what was it? Or maybe it was a combination of all of those things. Yeah. It's a very good question and uh, it's a very emotional one for me because you reflect back to those times and you, and you know, personally, you know, people that, you know, fell onto bad times and stuff. I mean, just to say to our, our listeners as well, just, you know, let's be, uh, most of my friends are fine. You know, it's not like they didn't make it. Or <laughs> most of them are doing well and have families and, and doing fine. But we're talking as a whole, I guess, you know, as, yeah. in general, you know, it was a tough it was a tough place to get ahead. Ibrahim, to be honest with you, the more I reflect on what's happened, I think you have to be grateful to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that I look at the turning points in my life and really they will have to do with nothing that I've done myself. You can attribute that you tried. Yes, I did make that application to university. Yes, I did choose that course. Yes, I did try to find a job in the States. But how I got those jobs, why they sent me around the world, how did I end up spending like 12 years, 13 years or whatever it was in in the valley, picking up those experiences. Obviously, we don't call it luck, but I mean, Qadr Allah, at the end of the day, that he created those opportunities. I think the only thing that I can attribute to myself, if anything, is when I did become more Islamically aware, let's just say, when that 
part of me did grow and that did grow before I moved out to the States. Alhamdulillah. Yeah, I'm glad it moved. I'm glad I was a bit more practicing before I moved out there. My intentions became a lot more clearer. And I think, like I said, if there's anything I can attribute to is that vision of what I wanted to do for the Ummah and, and help Muslims and stuff like that. And the reasons why I was doing it and the intentions that I was doing it became a lot more clearer. And maybe, Allahu Alim, maybe through those more sincere intentions, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala start, opened up opportunities for me. You know, we're very aware of the hadith of the Prophet and that, you know, you step towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala by a hand, he comes to you with an arm and you walk, he runs. And so maybe it was that, but I think most of the transition in my life I can put down to the fact that my intentions were sincere to do something good. And uh, because they were sincere, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala opened up the right doors for me in those opportunities. And I also feel that when I'm not being so good and not being sincere, that those opportunities constrain them or, you know, are, are restricted. So though I feel the opposite as well, you know. And so I guess this is the lesson that we have, that we're in a constant check on ourselves, uh, that we're doing things for the right intentions, that we're doing things for the right reasons. And um, that's what I believe happened. No, absolutely. No, again for that. And you then joined you went into mainstream charities and i think i remember you when we were having an initial conversation mm. online you mentioned how that was quite a deliberate move on your part what was the thinking there yeah it was a very deliberate move um by the time i'd moved into mainstream charities well when i mean mainstream so we're like we're, we're, we're oxfam and, and red cross largely and uh, i think oxfam gb at the time was about 500 or 600 million pound GB was a Red Cross was around 200 million, I think, in the UK, obviously over a billion globally. When we say mainstream, it was like obviously the mainstream, the uh, charity sector. And and it was really just, I think I got to the point where I'd gone back to university. I'd done an MBA in, in charity management and came back up. And um, I guess I just wanted to prove myself. I think the Muslim charity sector can become quite a bubble and you can be seen as being very good very quickly by a small group of people and I guess I just needed to prove myself outside of that and show that I can work lead in a larger charity and that was one so definitely getting out of that bubble and proving myself and then what I also realized is you're worth a lot more you're valued a lot more in our own community charity sector when you have that external experience and you come back in and I did see that that was number one number two it was actually to pick up the experience as well. Just like the Nokia experience had done for me initially, I thought that I could join some of the mainstream charities, learn. I love learning. I've always been been passionate about learning myself and, and those around me as well. And I thought I could bring that mainstream charity sector experience back into our communities, the smaller, medium-sized charities, not necessarily even only Muslim, but Muslim and non-Muslim, smaller charities, and try to build that bridge a little bit better. There's a lot of great work that the larger charities do, experience that they have. And I just didn't feel that was trickling down, you know, to some of the people that are trying to run smaller charities or build charities and don't have that experience. So wherever I was learning, I was constantly sharing, whether it was the weekends, whether I was doing it as a consultancy for free, mostly for free when I had a full time job and trying to just transfer those skills across what I was learning. And then even inside those charities like Red Cross and 
Oxfam, I'd joined the diversity teams, I'd joined the side projects, anything that I could do to try to build that bridge between those mainstream charity sectors and, and the smaller, medium-sized charities that I think could benefit from their vast experience. Makes a lot of sense. And do you think that, you know, the Muslim charities, as you said, like, you know, there's this, I don't know, inferiority complex in some ways mm. to the mainstream charities. Is that justified or or not? I think the inferiority complex, I don't know if it's the right word, but obviously most of our charities are not as big as the mainstream charities, right? So, But, you know, you get similar size charities. But I think as a community as a whole, and we're definitely changing, obviously, you know, you've got charities like Islamic Relief and, and Muslim Aid and, and others that have been around now for a long time, right? You know, we celebrated 35 years last year. I think Islamic Relief celebrated it a year before us. You know, so that way some of us have been around long enough that we do have influence in the sector and, and we have people around the table and discussing. We've got people from our communities leading mainstream charities as well. So those people are there. I think the difference is that we still largely operate on the fringe. There's two areas, and I'm trying to address this obviously with the various engagements I have now and the position I have now, but there's an inferiority complex definitely from our side on what conversations we should be around the table on and being engaged in. But then there's also some work to be done for the other side or the mainstream charity side to make sure that they are reaching out and getting the right people around the table when they have discussions about our communities and the places that we serve and the places that we work in. You know, someone quoted me something, you know, ages ago about, you know, 80% of non-Muslim charity work is done in Muslim countries, you know, for example, you know, especially on the development side, which is believable. It might not be 80%, it might be 70%, maybe 60%. But are we involved in 60% of the discussions? I don't think so. So yeah. our job, my job, your job, which I think you're doing well in the IFT side, for example, is how do you bring the right people around the table, especially when it involves making an effort on both sides you know the commercial people that you speak to they need to reach out so that we know where the opportunities are where those tables are where those meetings are and then from our side we need to get out of our comfort zones out of those bubbles and go and step into those meetings and make our opinions known and our political stances known and people have an understanding Oxfam was a good example I mean you know they gave me opportunity to sit down and to speak to them for example on Zakat but after I left, they did launch a zakat policy and stuff like that. I'm not going to go into the technicalities Islamically, whether they're allowed to collect zakat or not. But the point is that we're talking about a 600 million pound organization. And I'm telling them about Quranic verses on zakat, what it means to Muslims, why it's different from charity and sadaqah and these kind of things. So we need to do more of that because sometimes it's, the other side just doesn't know. It's not because they're trying to exclude you. It's just because they don't know. So... That's where I think the challenge is. Both sides, there has to be some level of reaching out from mainstream work. And then we need to be a lot more brave in entering those discussions and with our faith. Right. So there's no point going into those discussions and not taking your faith along. The whole point is that you represent your community, your ambassadors for your faith and so on and so forth. And keeping in mind that you might be the only person that that side might meet that is a Muslim that might be able to tell them about that your community or the work that they're doing. And this is, I think, responsibilities that us leaders and, and people that work in the charity sector have to take on board. 
Uh, Gashav, I wanted to ask you about in the the latter half of this interview a bit more about some of the big challenges that are facing the Muslim charity sector right now, mm-hmm. and and then I guess after you've you know, identified what those challenges are, how we go about solving that, how you're approaching it from a Muslim aid perspective, mm-hmm. I'd love to hear that whole piece from you. My experience with both sides of like the Muslim non-Muslim sectors has been that the challenges are very similar. The difference I've seen is normally scale. You know, the scale of the challenges uh, differ, but the challenges are very similar. And I think over the last few years, the Muslim charity sector has unfortunately been challenged further with some of the, the political situations in, in some of the countries that we work in, both here in the UK with some of the policies and statements, political statements that have been made. So that has put Muslim charities under a great level of scrutiny, there's no doubt. And uh, we do seem to be in constant discussions on how to make ourselves. I think, I think in, someone quoted to me the other day, like, you know, more religious than the Pope, whatever the Muslim equivalent of that is. We try, you know, both because our community treats charity very differently to a non-Muslim charity. You know, it's a big part of our faith. It's not just giving. There's obligatory giving, there's sadaqah giving, there's sustainable giving. So I think the very word charity kind of misleads the whole discussion sometimes because you get into the same kind of debates that non-Muslim charities are in and we need to frame it differently. A big part of our work has little or nothing to do with charity. Zakat cannot be easily translated as charity, as you know. It's like a government collecting a tax and then distributing that tax according to certain guidelines and rules and regulations, for example. So you're playing a very different role as a NGO, a Muslim NGO, than, for example, SAVA or some of the non-Muslim charities are when they're collecting their charity money. You know, So we've got the regulatory concerns, but then we've got like a very, more so to most people, a, a very strict Islamic code on some of the work that we do and trying to show that to our donors that we are upholding that code and ethics and stuff is very important to us. As regards the challenges, so I think that's one. I think uh, the standards that we actually hold, our donors hold us to a lot more religiously inclined or come from our faith. They are not just giving a pound. They're trying to fulfill a religious obligation. And you have to show them that you are fulfilling that religious obligation in an appropriate way. And I think our donor base is becoming a lot more in, uh, educated in both the Islamic giving and the charity giving as a whole, which puts an onus on us as charities, as NGOs, to show that we are worthy of taking that money and delivering that service on their behalf and their religious duty on their behalf. So that transparency means a very different thing, again, to Muslim charities than it does to others, I think. Um, Are we doing it religiously correctly? And then the programmatic side, are we doing it correctly? And I'll come on to the admin question because I know you've got that lined up for me later. But the transparency thing has become a lot more important. I think sustainable giving is another area of the Muslim charity sector that I think if we don't address soon, and some of us are addressing it, I know we're trying to address it with Muslim Aid now, I think others have started to look into it, but you know, moving away from this reactive seasonal giving and the dependency that we have on things like Ramadan and Qurbani to sustain ourselves as charities or take those admin rates, I think is not sustainable anymore. And we need to find 
and educate our donor base on what it actually takes to deliver quality programs and actually what it takes to create change around the world. We can't do that. We're just collecting your zakat and distributing your zakat at 0%. We can't do that. Our income last year, I think, was about 24, 25 million pounds. And, you know, if all of that is given as restricted cash towards programmatic work, then how do we pay for things like safeguarding to make sure children are not abused in our orphanages or wells are dug properly and, and monitored so that water is continuously safe to drink? And these kind of you know salaries, and I'm not just talking about my salary in the UK, let's put that to one side, but what about countries, Pakistan, India, so Pakistan, Bangladesh, you know, Yemen, places where we have offices that Palestine, people putting themselves literally putting their lives at, on the line to deliver people's Gurbani, whilst like dodging, shelling and, and getting through that stuff. How do we make sure that person's family is safe, they're safe, if our donors don't want to give anything above, whatever it is, 10%, 20%, 0%, you know, admin fees. So... I think that business model for charities need to be looked at uh, because I think we're continuously digging ourselves into a hole by competing against each other, especially when it comes to times like Ramadan and Qurbani. I mean, you only have to look at the adverts and, and the TV appeals and stuff to see. One brother described it to me the other, last Ramadan as, you know, the only thing different between them is, is the colours of the T-shirts that the presenters are wearing. And they have every right to say that. Secondly or thirdly, I think about collaboration right i think there's a massive opportunity for muslim charities especially to carve out their specialities and then work with each other on those specialities we are still very much what do they call it jack of all trades master of none type of sector most charities start off doing one thing and then they eventually develop into delivering every kind of project that the donor wants so i think honing in which muslim aid are now doing to carve out niches of specializations for themselves, whether that be in WASH or education or working in fragile states, emergency relief in certain countries, and then work with each other. So if Muslim Aid is in Palestine and they've got the resources there and they can deliver your thing, then why are you setting up another office in Palestine? Why can't you just raise the money, work out a deal with Muslim Aid and give them your cash? And alhamdulillah, we are doing a lot more of that now. Inshallah, you'll see... Some of those collaborations now come to light of hopefully in the next few months. I don't want to make it public now, but those are the kind of things we need to look into. It, it saves costs. It means more of your beneficiary money gets to the places they need to get to or a bigger percentage because you've shared you know, your IT costs or your delivery costs or your salaries or your rent in a country. So I think finding a niche, I think sustainable ways of covering your income, I think letting go of your power, the decentralization of power from HQ to actual countries that you work in, to the people that are closer to the ground. And then lastly, technology. How do we use technology to, again, increase awareness of our work, to support those people in country, to advocate for change? I think you know one thing that I've learned myself, and I think the listeners would have learned over the past few months, is things like the emergencies that we had in Palestine or in Yemen, these things cannot be sold by NGO work alone. Agreed. Yeah, I can tell you, listen, you can give me a hundred million pounds for Palestine and I'll feed the whole of Palestine. But I'm not going to solve the problem in Palestine by just feeding the people. 
This has to be done with advocacy, joining up with other organizations that can make permanent solutions there or long-term solutions there work so that Muslim aid's work there becomes minimal. Otherwise, what do we do? Do we carry on feeding the people in Palestine year after year? The situation hasn't changed. So I think it's about getting that understanding and collaboration, like I said, with, with partners that can actually have longer term solutions to these problems and not just the reactive ones that we have on a yearly basis. So long term thinking from our donor base, educating them on what it takes to deliver aid, sustainable ways of giving, administration fees, understanding what they cover. You know, some of this obviously lies with us but also more education that we have to give to our donor base on, on what it actually takes to deliver the work. Jazakallah khair for that, Kashif. Um, what I want to get into a little bit is like, I think you're doing admirable work, you know, what you've just said here as well, but also offline around, you know, trying to think about charity in a, in a, like a fresh way or like, because ultimately I think a big part of the issue is that, you've got this kind of dual fire where people don't like admin and overheads, but at the same time, you've got this fierce competition between 20 charities, which is actually replicating all of these overheads. Mm. And so and the logical solution to that is obviously collaboration, as you're saying, right? And trying to educate the Muslim donor about how this the hang up around admin fees isn't necessarily the right approach. Mm. So like trying to tackle it from both sides. I guess my question to you is, you know, how have you found the charity sector generally, obviously without naming any names, the other larger charities, are they quite receptive to this? How, how have they been thinking about it? And do you think there's like hope for, for this kind of more collaborative future? I have to be very careful now how I answer that. But look, like yourself, I come from, well, I say I come from, it's been like, what, 13, 14 years now. I come from a sector that the end goal and the accountability is very clear. I went to my manager at the end of the month or a year or six months, whenever you had your performance review in a large international, you met your deadline or you met your milestone. You didn't meet them, you got a slap on the hand. And if you didn't meet them continuously, you'd lose your job. And if you met them, you'd get promoted or you get more money or you know whatever the thing is. Fundamentally, we have to understand that the charity sector works very differently. Right? We are asking lots of people around the world to not take the same money they would normally have maybe outside of the charity sector that obviously indirectly has an effect on the level of talent that you can attract to your organizations but the consumer our donors the customers still expect the same level of service they do from organizations of similar size and money like you said a lot not all but mostly don't want to pay the overheads that it will take like you would do with a company so no one questions why a coke can that might take pennies on the pound to actually produce cost you me and you over a pound to buy in a shop sometimes i think two pound oh, i was in the shop the other day they were charging two pound for a coke you know that probably doesn't take what more than 12p to produce that can and, and put the drink inside it right but we don't question what the difference is because we like the coke and, and they're delivering a service. Whereas charities work under a very different circumstance. You tell someone that it actually costs you, what, 150 or 400 pounds to drill a well and we're charging a thousand. They're like, where's the difference going? Well, 
it's not going to cost you salary. It's not going to to think. It's, it's because that's how much you know it takes to get someone to dig that well in the middle of nowhere, you know, in a thing. So, I think what I'm trying to say is, part of the problem is that we need to do a better job as charities to educate our donors on what it takes to deliver the things that they're asking us to deliver. So there is a level of education there from our side. Number one. And we're trying to do that as Muslim Aid. I'm, we're trying to do more stuff like this. I'm trying to do more stuff like this, talk to people like yourselves, get the message out there that it takes a certain amount of money to deliver a quality service to the customer. And then I think from the donor's perspective, then to appreciate that charities are only there on their behalf. So we're delivering a service so that Ibrahim can't do Qurbani himself. So he asked Muslim Aid to do it on his behalf. If Ibrahim could do that Qurbani himself, distribute it himself and do that obligation himself, there wouldn't be a need for Muslim Aid to do it. So I think when we're looking at charity giving from the donor's perspective, I think we just need to appreciate more that it is a service that we are providing that allows them to fulfill their religious or personal ambitions, motivations. We are not here to make money. You know, there are easier ways to make money, as IFG would know. But <laughs> we're here to provide a service. And no one's getting rich off this stuff. As regards what has been the level of or the acceptance of collaboration, there's definitely work for us to do. There's definitely people in the sector that have reached out from the time I took the role. Uh, was it 18 months ago now? And have been working very closely to try to put collaborations together of similar mindset and stuff but on the whole as everyone can see from the sector muslim and non-muslim by the way yeah there isn't enough of it i think is the fair thing to say even those that are willing to help even those that are willing to come together will probably do a, a lot of things but to put your name next to someone else and you know <laughs> actually deliver something together still requires a lot of work but it is changing and inshallah i'm hoping that muslim aid will be able to lead on that and it's one of the things that we're hoping to lead on in the next few months uh, the listeners inshallah and donors will see a lot more of that from muslim aid and then i think we're in the ideal position for others to follow i mean muslim aid is still the second largest in the country or second oldest in the country you get tired of saying that because I think Islamic Relief are officially like a few months older than us, but they're doing great work as well. Mashallah, may Allah bless them. All of them are. But I think there is a change coming. There are people, like-minded people now in some of these organizations that want to work together, that want to do some of the things that you mentioned together, collaborate more, um, deliver better together. And I think now, inshallah, I'm hoping over the next, like I said, six, 12 months, you'll see more of that coming around. But we do need to work more at it. Fantastic. No, JazakAllah care for that, Gashuk. I guess really for me now, the final question is, you know, looking forward into the next few years, now that you've been in a CEO of Muslim Aid for a good few months now, and, you know, you're turning the ship around to a direction that you're happy with. What's that direction of travel? Like? What excites you about the future of the next few years? JazakAllah I joined Muslim Aid at a time where personally I was reflecting on what it would take to turn around the sector. And I truly believe it was one of those transition periods, one of those like, periods that you mentioned at the beginning of our conversation that Allah SWT intervened as he does and, and the Muslim Aid opportunity came around and I feel like Allah SWT was like, okay, look, start here. 
and see how you do if you really think you can turn around the sector. So I think Muslim Aid, being the, one of the oldest Muslim-led charities, faith-based charities in, in the country, in the world, being one of the largest, I think is perfectly placed to lead some of these conversations that we're talking about. I think there's a lot that our faith teaches us about charity and our standards and the way that we should be working and what we can contribute to the sector is a lot more than what we're currently doing as a sector, as a Muslim charity sector. So what excites me is that, inshallah, once we get over the current challenges that we are, and we are getting over them, both on the sustainable income side and the regulatory side, we're not perfect, but alhamdulillah, like you said, we have managed to transform or are on that, on that journey now. The, what excites me is that I really do believe that Muslim Aid can lead that, those conversations in the sector and show both the Muslim and non-Muslim charity sectors that you can work differently than what we are doing right now. There are different models out there that we can experiment with, that we can go with, that don't look like what they are right now. I don't see why not or whatever double negative or good that, you know, why Muslim Aid cannot lead those discussions? You know, is there a better way to raise money? Is there a better way to make yourself sustainable? Can we do it with a lot more collaboration? Can we deliver long-term solutions and get out of this reactionary giving? Can we solve problems? Wouldn't it be great that we had a conversation in three, four years and we can actually say that as a Muslim community, we solved the Yemen problem. We solved the Ethiopia problem. We solved the Sudan problem. We solved the Palestinian problem. The Muslim community cannot put their hand up and say that we have solved any you know, problem that we've been raising money for over the X number of years that the Western charities have been around. You know, it would be really nice to be able to do that. And, you know, and why not? That's the vision, right? Let's solve a problem together. And if we can solve a problem together, we can hopefully lead others to believe that they can do that as well. I think that's where I see Muslim. I think we are fundamentally placed to change the way that we work in the sector. We want to lead that discussion and we want to share our experiences, just like we've done with the Zakat policy, just like we're doing with the child sponsorship program. You know, we're fundamentally changing the way that these things work in the sector and we're giving it away for free. We're not keeping it to ourselves. We don't want to just be the best. We want to share that knowledge and best practice with our colleagues and our friends because we want to raise the bar of the sector. That's the fundamental difference. We're not trying to get ahead of Islamic relief. We're not trying to get rid of human appeal. We're not trying to get ahead of anyone. We're just trying to raise the bar of the sector. And we believe that we're, why not Muslim Aid lead that discussion? Definitely. No, JazakAllah for that, Gashif. That's been a really interesting conversation. And, you know, I wish you all the best with the work that you're doing at Muslim Aid and also more broadly in the charitable sector itself. And, you know, hopefully we can get you back on in 12, 18, 24 months time. Mm. And you can, you know, report back to us on, you know, how things have progressed and hopefully we'll be, you know, living in a, you know, a somewhat better world and charitable sectors, hopefully heading in the right direction. We really, really appreciate you making the time and uh, joining us on the podcast. No, thank you for the opportunity. And again, just to remind the listener, look, everyone's doing great work. Everyone's trying really hard. Uh, Everyone's doing their best. All my experience, both in the commercial side and on the charity side has shown that I've not met anyone in the sector that is trying to hoodwink people out of their money or do something wrong on purpose. Everyone's been very well intentioned on trying to deliver 
the best they can for their donors. I'm saying with all of my experience, I haven't seen nothing less. You know, yes, we get it wrong sometimes, especially the Muslim charity sector. I think if you look at what they normally get into trouble for, what the questions are being asked of them, is very, very small or insignificant compared to some of the trouble that some of the mainstream charities have got themselves into. So I'd like to just give the confidence to our listeners that we are doing a great job, but like most people, like most organizations, you're normally more critical of yourself than others of, of you. And, and so these are just opportunities of us to be better. Allah SWT says that we try to reach for Ihsan in everything that we do, in, in the best in everything that we do. So everything that I've said is just to make ourselves better. You know, we're doing great. The sector's doing great. They're doing good work. And like I said, I've not gathered any evidence to say otherwise. This is just about making ourselves better and like setting that benchmark. Absolutely. Thank you very much. If you got this far, you must have enjoyed the podcast, which means you'll definitely love our other episodes and other content we produce as well, inshallah. Be sure to check out the website, islamicfinanceguru.com, as well as our YouTube channel and social media. Until next time, assalamu alaikum.